I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. Down over the window comes the dazzling sunlit rays. Through the back alleys, through the blinds, another one of them endless days. Honeybees are buzzing, leaves begin to stir. I'm in love with my second cousin. I tell myself I could be happy forever with her. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host of Freewheeling, Rob Kelly. And joining us to talk about Floater, Too Much to Ask, from 2001's Love and Theft, is fellow Bobcat Jim Salvucci. Hi, Jim. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So before we get to the song, I'd ask you, Jim, how did you become a fan of Bob? <laughs> I knew you were going to be asking me this. I've been thinking about that a lot. I guess when I was in high school is when I started discovering Bob Dylan. Um, that would have been the, the late 70s, early 80s. I had a friend who was uh, really into folk music, um, which was kind of odd for a high school kid at that time. His mom mm. used to take him to uh, a folk club outside of Philly uh, called the... Um, the main point, which I don't think is there anymore, was legendary club. And he played guitar and he kind of got me into folk music. I started listening to it and I was listening to radio a lot and I was hearing some Bob Dylan. I liked it. And I started listening to some of his folk stuff. And my friend's mom actually had two albums of Bob Dylan that I borrowed. And um, one was the, the Greatest Hits Volume 1 and the other one was Dylan, the, the infamous album mm. that Clover Records put out as punishment for Dylan going to, uh, to asylum. And... Uh, so that was my first like album length introduction to Bob Dylan. And for some reason I stuck with it after that. <laughs> and I decided to start buying Bob Dylan albums on my own. So, you know, being so much older than I guess, um, I decided to uh, look at his albums one by one in chronological order. So I bought Bob Dylan. So my first three Bob Dylan albums I listened to are greatest hits, Dylan and Bob Dylan. Then I went to Freewheel, and then from there, I, I started wising up and started leaving the chronology. But I just really got into his folk stuff, and then I really got into his, his rock and roll. I started loving it, and uh, I got to see him in, in 1981 when I was 16 years old. Wow. Which was a blast. Um, there's a story there if you want to hear it. Absolutely, of course. Okay. Well, uh, so, you know, 16 years old, I was there with my, my girlfriend and, and another friend, and you know, somebody's mom drove us to the Spectrum in Philadelphia, which is a big <laughs> hockey hall. Yes, I'd say I saw a bunch of Dylan shows there. Yeah, okay, and uh, pretty pretty mediocre acoustics. It wasn't my first um, concert, but uh, it wasn't my first concert to Spectrum. But you know, we got there early and um, real early, and because somebody was driving us, and um, we had to wait outside, and we could hear inside. They sort of let us in a, into an inner chamber, and we could hear inside the stadium. Um, music and they were playing music and I found out more recently that that was the only um, set during that period where uh, the only concert during that period where he did a sound check we could hear his backup singers and all we didn't realize he had backup singers at that time um, because we're just listening to what was on the radio mostly so it was you know pretty exciting we get into the place and there's maybe 200 people in this massive stadium built for thousands and we're sitting there Horrible seats, you know, it's an oval stadium. You've got stage down one end. We're kind of in the middle, up pretty high. We're sitting on an aisle, and my friends were sitting closer to the stage. I was sitting the furthest away, and they were talking away and, you know, not paying much attention. I was all excited. I'm going to see Bob Dylan. 
And this guy starts walking toward us. And he's coming, you know, from the direction of the stage, but he's coming down our row of seats. And I'm thinking, what a weirdo. There's like a dozen rows below us that are empty. And there's a dozen rows above us. And this guy's walking right at us. And I'm thinking, this is really strange. So I'm watching him intently and he's dressed kind of funny. He was wearing this sort of casual sweatshirt with a hood, which at that time we called a sweatshirt with a hood. Now we call them hoodies. <laughs> and he gets about maybe 10, 20 feet from us. And all of a sudden he stops and he climbs over the seat into the row in front of us and then comes right past us. And I'm watching him and he stops and he turns and he looks at me. And I think, what a nut. And he goes up the aisle behind, right next to me, goes up behind, he goes into the tunnel. And I turned to my friend and said, did you see that Bob Dylan freak there? That guy looked just like him. He had the <laughs> hair, he was wearing makeup. What was that about? Why would he do that? And they were like, maybe it was Bob Dylan. I said, no, it wasn't Bob Dylan. Why would he be walking around a stadium? So then we're, you know, they get back to talking and I'm watching again. And I see this guy come back down another aisle and he goes, and he goes toward the stage and kind of disappears back there. And I think, nah, no way. So for years, I thought, no way. Then I learned later on that around that time, Dylan was walking around stadiums before the crowd came in. Thinking, no way. That doesn't, no way. I still don't believe it. And then, of course, later on, I found out when Bob Dylan's not performing, his uniform is a hoodie, right? That's what he wears. Oh, man. As soon as you said hoodie, I was like, oh. (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know. I mean, whatever. I I have no no strong opinion one way or the other, but I think it's a funny story. But my reaction to him, I was just, I immediately was sure it was not Bob Dylan. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So what was the show like? I mean, 1981, was he still just doing all of the, the born again stuff or had he started working in the, the older songs at that point? Yeah, that was the tour when he started working in the, the other stuff. Um, so he started off with a couple um, gospel numbers that I didn't really know. He had, he did um, got to serve somebody. And I, I do, I didn't know that from the radio. And then I've looked it up and he did, I believe in you. And I remember when he did like a rolling stone, which was the third number. And I went nuts and it was, I had, I had a ball. His band was great. The singers were great. I mean, it was, it was a really good concert. But uh, yeah, he was, and I've seen him a bunch of times since then. So, um, you know, but that was, that was a lot of fun to see him then. Absolutely. My goodness. How about, about, how, about how many times have you seen him over the years? You've had, you've had a lot of chances to see him over the decades. Yeah. Um, I mean, I saw him, I, I only saw him a couple times after that until like the 2000s. And then I've seen him, I think I, I figured out a while back that I think I've seen him 22 times. <laughs> You've again. You've really seen running the gamut of them, I and you're seeing him with the backup singers and all this. I would have. I mean, I've heard bootlegs of those shows, but uh, that would have been amazing to actually attend one of those shows. Yeah, it was fun. I mean, you know, 16 years old, you can appreciate it only so much. But um, yeah, it was it was great, and the crowd was really in, into it. It was it was a lot of fun. Really good concert. Now, when you started getting into him, I mean, obviously he was on the radio at that point. Were you familiar with him that much, or were you, were you totally kind of a blank slate? No, he was, he was on the radio. Um, I listened to the, the radio that played some folk rock. So I would hear the radio station in Philly that played folk rock. Um, I forget the, the name of it, not the heavy rock station. And so, you know, I was familiar with a lot of his music. I, I knew Tangled Up in Blue. I knew some of that stuff. I didn't know any of the stuff from Desire and certainly not. They never played Street Legal. And they, the only thing <laughs> they played off the gospel albums were, was uh, uh, Got to Serve Somebody. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, n- nobody ever played anything off of Street Legal, unfortunately. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, can you remember what you said? So you like the folk stuff was what initially attracted you. And then 
you said it, you started realizing you're hearing this other stuff and you're like, Oh Lord, this is, you know, this is all amazing. Not just yeah. the folk material. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I just sort of moved into it. I mean, I was always into rock, so that wasn't that big a transition. Um, but yeah, the folk was the, was a bit of a departure for me, if anything. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, I would hear them a lot on the radio. I mean, they played them a fair amount, mostly greatest hit stuff. They didn't play the folk stuff very much. Right. I would imagine if you're just getting into Bob and one of the first records of his you get is the Dylan one <laughs> that, that could really throw you off. Cause you're like, what the hell is this? Like, this guy's a genius. What is all this stuff? Oh my. I mean, there's some stuff I like on that record, but there's also some pretty bad stuff. So I can imagine it's, that might be a little like, uh, huh? What? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, I was a kid, you know, <laughs> I was like 14, 15 years old. So I kind of, I think I kind of approached it like, you know, this is Bob Dylan. He's a genius. And if I don't get it, well, there's something wrong with me, you know, <laughs> so I struggled through it. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I'd say, I, I don't think we've covered anything from that album yet. I think really? that's the last record that we haven't gotten to. I mean, it's all covers and stuff, but there's some, there is some stuff on there. I like, but anyway, okay. Well, very cool. Uh, that's, uh, that's very exciting. So let's talk about floater yeah. too much to ask from 2001's love and theft, as I said. So what, why did you want to talk about the, this song? Yeah, because I don't do anything easy, I guess. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating song. So a, a couple years ago, or a year and a half ago, I was part of a panel. We were going to do a presentation, actually in Philly, on, at the Pop Culture Association. And um, I, was gonna, I was writing about love and theft. And I was looking at the characters in the album. And it's just full of characters. A lot of Dylan's writing around that time is just full of characters, like Chronicles um, and, and also Mass Anonymous. And uh, the, the, uh, this song really struck me because it, it just stands out from all of his other songs lyrically. Um, even the title. The title's critically important. Um, I'm an English professor by training, you know, so I read poetry. And I know, you know, people often skip the title, and that's usually a big mistake. Well, with Dylan, the vast majority of his songs, the title is a line in the song, usually something from the chorus, um, which is why everybody, you know, when, during his concerts, when the when he's singing a song or mumbling through a song, depending on your, your point of view, um, when he gets to the line that is the, the title, everybody cheers, right? Mm-hmm. That's the old tradition. And so, you know, floater, that word doesn't appear in the song. Right. Um, you know, the, the, the subtitle does. Too much to ask. But the, 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 the actual title, floater, does not. And that's pretty rare with Dylan. You see, it, I, I was actually just flipping through um, BobDylan.com, looking at all his song titles. You see it a lot in his, his 60 songs. Um, you know, Subterranean Homesick Blues would be a standout. Um, you know, Positively like, Fourth Street. Positively Fourth Street. I heard your podcast on you know, Bob Dylan's 115th Dream, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, these, are, these are the ones that stand out. Uh, modern Day Women, numbers 12 and 35, <laughs> you know. Um, but most of them, except that one, are evocative of something in the song. Right. Positively Fourth Street. There's something about Fourth Street. Right. And people argue, is it Fourth Street in New York? Is it Fourth Street in Minneapolis? Is, is it both? Um, you know, but there's something evocative in the song or, you know, it, it, or there's there's songs that have subtitles that really have that are that are that are um, not that don't appear in a song like Senor Tales of Yankee Power. Right. But he sings Senor. This one is it's different. There's nothing about it that evokes floater. What's floater? <laughs> what is that? Is that? It sounds like a noun, um, but what is it? You know, it just doesn't really fit. And I would argue that Floater is the, the, the character in the song. Um, that's the person singing. 
It's a person. So what is a floater? Well, a floater is a, it could be a number of things. I mean, it's, you know, floater is something that floats, right? A boat, there's a boat in the song. A floater is someone who moves from idea to idea, floats from idea to idea. That happens in this song. Um, floater is another thing. It, it's, a, uh, it's a term that law enforcement uses when they find a dead body in the water, hmm. right? Like uh, Jay Gatsby was a floater. He dies at the end of The Great Gatsby, which is another book that um, Dylan mentions in this album. And you know, it's, it, he, he ends up as a floater. So what is this guy? And I, I would argue he's, he's all those things. If he isn't a dead body, he's going to be soon. I think there's a lot of, this whole album's just full of um, people who are destined for things. And Floater's destined for something bad. And what he's doing is he's trying to evade that. So this album, this, I'm sorry, this song is really a stream of consciousness. It's an internal monologue. It's like James Joyce or Virginia Woolf, something like that, where we're really inside this guy's mind. People have talked about the lyrics of the song being you know, disconnected. There's no, they don't really fit, that nothing goes together. It's true unless you see it as an internal monologue. And you realize this is a guy who's just thinking. And he's running through his mind different images, memories. He's nostalgic. He thinks of school. He thinks of literature. Um, you know, he, he kind of has this idea. He, he, he makes himself sound tougher than he is. But really, until the end of the song, that's, that's when we discover that he's really just evading something. He's scared about something. He has to do something or something's going to be done to him that he doesn't want to have happen. Uh, so I find that just fascinating. This, I think this is a real standout in Dylan's lyrics. And he's performed the song a bunch, um, uh, like 87 times, I think. More than you would think. This, is, this yeah. doesn't suggest, the sound uh, of this song doesn't suggest something you would hear in concert a lot. But yeah, I mean, 87, not a lot compared to some of his other songs, but yeah. more than a lot of other songs that are kind of unusual one-offs that you, could, you would guess maybe would never get performed. But this, yeah, he's, he's tried this a bunch of times, at least during... Uh, a specific set of years. Yeah. I think the last time was 2007. Yep. Yep. yep, yep. Um, and that's the other thing is the, the tune of this song, um, which is completely lifted yes. um, from a 1930s song, a Bing Crosby vehicle called um, Snuggle, Snuggled, Snu- yeah, Snuggled on Your Shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And with this, with, which also has a subtitle, Cuddled in Your Arms, which, you know, obviously is about sex. So, uh, it's so he just lifted this tune. Why would he lift this tune, this obscure Bing Crosby tune from 1932? And it's a direct lift. Um, just really interesting. He's, so again, it's something evocative here, something about the tune, the title, the way the lyrics are structured. And then the, the really amazing thing, it's, it's done by his, his, um, his road band. And he gets this old tiny sound out of him, which is really extraordinary. This song does have a, a kind of like a, I remember people saying at the time, it had kind of like a European flair to mm. it. Uh, I mean, again, the, the, the fiddle on it certainly doesn't sound like, you haven't really heard a lot of fiddle in Bob Dylan songs and dating back until the Scarlet Rivera days. Uh, but yeah, it, it sticks out kind of on the record in a good way. It has a, it was funny. I, I was looking up some of the interpretations of the song and a lot of people have a very kind of uh, downbeat, view of it and i can understand that and you're talking about again like a floater could be a very negative image there's something about the tune that's so sweet to me that it it first of all to me there's that tension with the lyrics because the lyrics seem to be slightly darker but to me the tune is so dominant that especially that fiddle part of it and the the way it kind of ends on an up note that i always feel like there's a kind of more melancholy feel to it rather than something necessarily 
super dark based on again the lyrics even though the lyrics are for the longest time to me defy interpretation because as you said they seem to be just kind of a stream of consciousness from the 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 protagonist who is talking but none of it seems to kind of exactly match up uh in any given set of lines i mean i I quoted the opening lines that the song continues on i keep listening for footsteps but i ain't hearing any from the boat i fish for bullheads i catch a lot sometimes too many the summer breeze is blowing a squall is setting in sometimes it's just plain stupid to get in any kind of wind and then the old men around here sometimes they get on bad terms with the younger men but old, young, age, don't carry weight. It doesn't matter in the end. One of the bosses hangers on, comes to call at times when you least expect. Try to bully a strong arm you, inspire you with fear. It has the opposite effect. You know, what is all that? Is it what, what's, is the, again, is it just this guy's remembering his, his childhood? Is it in the present tense? Is it the past tense? What's, what, what's your read on it, at least? Well, I'm an English professor, so yes. Um, <laughs> it's all that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think uh, some, he's he's slipping in and out of, you know, the distant past, the the relatively recent past, and the present. Right? He's moving through all these things because he's trying to evade the future. I, I would I would say that he if he isn't in a boat, he's thinking about being in a boat. He's fishing, right? Or in his mind, at least he's fishing, and these things are running through his mind. You know, he says that the, um, you, you just read. I keep listening for footsteps. And I don't, I ain't hearing any. He's kind of, he would, well, if he's on a boat, he wouldn't hear footsteps. That's for sure. <laughs> it's just his mind. He's not, he's not hearing because he's in his mind on his, on his boat. And he starts talking about the weather, right? A breeze is coming in. There's going to be a squall. It would just be plain stupid to get in any kind of wind. He's reminding himself. So I kind of picture him on a boat concerned about the weather. He wants to, you know, move on, but he doesn't, but he's afraid to. He's going to have to move on. So it's, there's the tension. There's a lot of tension here. And you're right to use that word. The music is slightly melancholy, a little bit sweet. The original song was, you know, for that time, kind of sexy. And, you know, he's, so there's all that tension going on. But then he's thinking about his past, sometimes nostalgically, you know, longing for it, sometimes kind of rejecting it. And he's, at the same time, a little concerned about what's coming next. There's going to be a squall, so he's going, to have to, he's going to have to face whatever it is that he's got to deal with. But again, we don't really learn about that till the very end of the song. The, it continues on uh, where he says, uh, the, there's a new grove of trees on the outskirts of town. The old one is long gone. Timber two foot six across, burns with the bark still on. They say times are hard. If you don't believe it, you can just follow your nose. It don't bother me. Times are hard everywhere. We'll just have to see how it goes. This song, that lyrically, there's to me, it reminds me a, a bit of Tangled Up in Blue in that there's this sense of this person traveling from job to job. He seems to be recalling lots of different, you know, work that, that, that he's done over the years. Um, I know that there, there's another term for, Floater has another term, which means just a, a set of lines in a song that can mm-hmm. be moved from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can imagine, I could see sort of that being here. And then a lot of these lines, I think you could place them at any point in the song and it would still kind of work because it's not a story song. Tango Up in Blue, obviously a story song, but to me, it has that same kind of disassociated feel of like, all right, this guy worked in a, maybe in like a lumber yard at one point. He worked on it, as you just mentioned, like the squall, he was on a sailboat at another point. Like this guy has done lots of different things. And he said that like, you're talking about being a floater. He's kind of just traveled from place to place, kind of letting himself be buffeted by external events. 
uh, that's at least that's always how I took it. it. Took me years to kind of get a handle on it at all, outside of just individual lines. But that's where I start. It starts to coalesce for me a little bit. Is that this is someone who is being self-critical, somewhat, and then he is remarking about how he doesn't seem really in control of his own life, and things are just moving him around from place to place, and it's going to come back to play in the the final couple of lines. But that's again, that's sort of like my loose sense of, at least in my head, what the song is quote unquote about. Yeah, I think you're that. That's great. That's brilliant. That's I think you're exactly right. I think that idea that you know I don't necessarily see him as moving around a lot. I see him as moving around a lot as his mind, but he is going from job to job. I, I kind of see this as one geographical area, but okay. it's neither here nor there. And I like I like how you your your reference to uh, Tangled Up in Blue because there yeah you have a narrative, but it's like a a narrative you know told by a a cubist painter, right? <laughs> it's just sort of shattered and broken and put back together in, 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 in interesting ways. And that's kind of what this is, but that's what happens in your mind, right? You, you move from thought to thought, you know, this idea that he's, um, you know, when things are taking place, uh, the music is old. Some of the language is old. Um, the, the, the old men don't get on with the younger men who talks like that. <laughs> yeah. Bob Dylan does. Bob Dylan does he, I, you know, it just seems like old timey language. Um, and that, that comes up a lot. Um, he, he even, you know, he talks about Romeo and Juliet right after he mentions getting up, you know, sitting up near the teacher, if you want to learn anything, he's remembering his school days and then he slips into literature, you know, it's just jumping around all over the place, but you're right. He's, he doesn't, he's, something's pushing him. He's being driven and he knows this. And I would argue that that's what is happening throughout love and theft. It's also a major theme in, um, in uh, Mass and Anonymous, which which came out around the same time, um, the film, it, he's, it, it's all about destiny, right? Things are sort of preordained. Things are sort of destined. And, you know, how do you operate in that, that kind of a world when you know things are heading in a certain direction? Um, huh? And that's what's happening to, to poor Floater here. <laughs> he knows it's not going to end well, or it already hasn't end well. <laughs> it has already ended badly. Um, and he's just trying to, he's in denial. You know, just as you said that, uh, and then the idea again of the the name that cops use for for uh, a body they find in the water. I mean, you if you wanted to, you could say this is Bob's sort of like weirdo version of Sunset Boulevard, which yeah. opens with William Holden dead in the pool, floating in 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 the pool, and then the whole movie is his life story as he's telling it to you, even though he has already died. Yeah. Which yeah. again, I can imagine Bob being it because Bob loves old movies, so I'm sure he's seen Sunset Boulevard, uh, you know. But yeah. I mean, it, that, it just occurred to me that that could be that kind of thing. If this guy, maybe this guy, you know, died off of his boat. The squall came in, and he's dead, and he's just recalling all these things as he's as he starts, uh, you know, going into the light, as it were. Yeah, I, I, that's that's a that's absolutely right. I think you're that's a, a definite way you can interpret this, you know. And keep in mind, I, see, I sort of see. I keep talking about the album Love and Theft. Because I, it's one of my favorite Dylan albums, first off. And secondly, it's one of the most um, cohesive albums, thematically, right? I think there's a lot of things going on in all the songs that are very, very similar. And it's a lot of stuff, like I keep saying, it was dealing with at the time. Um, this is also the time he wrote Chronicles. In fact, I see Chronicles, Mass and Anonymous, and Love and Theft as a sort of trilogy. And he's, so in this song, you know, yeah, he's floating. Maybe he is dead or dying. And they, I love the the the, uh, the the Sunset Boulevard. He's floating in the pool because again, that's how Gatsby ends with Jay Gatsby floating 
in the, in the, you know, in dead in the pool or toward mm-hmm. the end of the book. And he mentions, you know, he uses a line from Gatsby in summer days on love and theft. That's right. And I would, you know, and I've also argued in a, when I was at um, Tulsa conference, I gave a paper there and I was talking about a, a number of characters throughout Dylan's work. And I talked about a, uh, a Twilly Dum Twilly Day being both being dead. They're two big bags of dead men's bones. Well, if a human being is a bag of bones, and if you're a bag of dead men's bones, you're already dead. So there's a lot of that going on in this album. And I think that sneaks into Floater as well. I think that's a definite way of looking at this song. Uh, the song he continues on, he says, my old man, he's like some feudal lord. Got more lives than a cat. Never seen him quarrel with my mother even once. Things come alive. Or they fall flat. By the way, I love the way he sings that line. That things come alive or they fall flat. He just lets it kind yeah. of float out again, to use that word again. You can smell the pine wood burning. You can hear the school bell ring. Got to get up near the teacher if you can, if you want to learn anything, which is the line you just quoted. That's my favorite line in the song because, again, it, whether how much it fits what's going on in Floater, I don't know. But to me, that feels like a very Bob Dylan line about Bob Dylan's life because, as we know, he came to New York as a young man to do that, to get up near the teacher, to learn oh, yeah. these things, whether it's Woody Guthrie or let, you know, any of those guys, yeah. he got to spend time with these people and learn from them directly. And so I have always loved that line. And I will, I will tell you not to get too far off float already, but I used that line uh, when uh, I went to art school uh, many years ago, I've mentioned it here and there. And one of my instructors was the guy that ran the school, the legendary Joe Kubert, the comic book artist, um, drew Sergeant Rock and drew Hawkman, one of the great careers in comic books. And I got to be his student. And years, uh, not, you know, in, in the uh, early 2000s when he passed away, uh, I got to write a small little obituary for him in a magazine all about Joe Kubert. And I used that line. I put that line at the end and I said, as Bob Dylan said, you got to get up near the teacher if you can, if you want to learn anything, because I thought what an opportunity to learn the art of comic book work from one of the greatest guys ever to do it. Now it didn't rub off on me, but that doesn't matter. I, <laughs> even in the moment I recognized how fortunate I was to get to spend even any time with this man. So that line to me has always had particular resonance, even if I, you know, I don't really quite figure out how it fits into the song. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I, I I use that line a lot. I used to teach a, a Dylan course, and uh, I would always use that line in the in the syllabus. I don't know how it had any impact on the students, but <laughs> I always thought that was great. But I love that idea of the of it being you know what Bob Dylan did when he went to New York. I never thought of that. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, I've said that that line. That even in the first time I ever heard the record, I was like, "Ooh, gee, that's that's a really great turn of phrase." So then we get even stranger here where he goes to Romeo. He said to Juliet, you got a poor complexion. It doesn't give your appearance a very youthful touch. Juliet said back to Romeo, why don't you just shove off if it bothers you so much? They got out of here any way they could. The cold rain can give you the shivers. They went down to the Ohio, the Cumberland, the Tennessee, all the rest of them rebel rivers. Uh, yeah. I, I will tell you, I I was sorry for the, uh, again, the uh, the water metaphor, water metaphors, but I'm at, I'm completely at sea with that stuff. I mean, what the hell is he talking about? How did Romeo and Juliet get roped into this? And I like how Juliet turns the tables on him. Uh, I like, I love her, you know, if you want to just shove off, if it bothers you so much. But again, are you able to, in your mind, establish some sort of through line to how this fits into what the song, what's going on in the song? Yeah. I mean, not to make it too literal, because that's a dangerous thing with this song, 
you know, but he, in the previous verse that you read, he, he's, you know, he evokes the teacher, he's thinking of school, and then he moves into thinking of literature, right? He starts thinking about, you know, his, his school days, but he's misremembering. He's, he's mixing it up with something else. And what he's literally mixing it up with is, is, a, is, is a book he floater didn't read, but Bob Dylan certainly did, which is um, Junichi Saga's uh, Confessions of the Yakuza, which right. um, the, the, the line, why don't you just shove off and bother you so much is directly out of that book as is the feudal lord line and a number of others, including the very last um, line of the song. So, you know, that book is throughout this, this song. And in, in fact, recently, um, Scott Wormuth, I should say the great Scott Wormuth, who is a researcher extraordinaire, um, has been associating even more saga books with this album and with this song and finding um, bits and pieces that come up. So Dylan was lifting pieces right out of saga's work. Um, phrases that he liked and putting them in there. So it's, so floater here is suddenly getting a little bit mixed in with Bob Dylan, you know, floater is misremembering Romeo and Juliet and combining it with Junichi Saga, right? Um, You know, probably not literally floaters doing that, Bob Dylan's doing it, but that's what's happening. Um, And then the, the, the next, the next verse, um, you know, I, I actually love that, those lines that went down the higher, the Cumberland, the Tennessee, all the rest of them, Rebel Rivers. The, the way he sings Rebel Rivers gives me chills. <laughs> <laughs> it just does. And I, I've lived on the Cumberland. Uh, you know, it's a weird, windy river. And so, you know, I, I think he's, he's just, again, drifting from item, floating from thing to thing in his mind, making up all these free associations. And much like Tangled Up in Blue, you could, you could rearrange these verses. You know, I don't know that he has in um, in concert. Um, you know, I haven't listened to, to to enough bootlegs of it, but maybe he does. I don't know. Um, like he does, you know, sometimes he does with Tangled Up and Blue. He leaves verses out, he puts verses in, moves them around, that kind of a thing. Um, but it definitely is interchangeable. There's one version on YouTube that has some video and you can see him uh, reading the lyrics off of papers. Yeah, uh, as he, <laughs> uh, which uh, I mean, I got to say that's probably got it's extraordinarily good uh, eyesight to be able to read all that and focus while you're playing and while you know the stages are. I know they're they're well lit, but I mean, they, you know, concert halls tend to be dark places, uh, and the fact that he can sort of keep keep tabs on that and like even keep focused on what line he's uh, he's talking about, I, I find that to be a you know an impressive act. Um, and then the the final verse, and they, boy, these verses are huge. By the way, yeah. it's interesting how it's broken up. Oh, yeah. oh, well. Before we move on to this, I'm going to ask you as a, as an expert in literature, what do you make of what is your feeling about him borrowing lines from this book? I mean, he got in a I don't know if he got in a lot of trouble. It was because he didn't, but it it definitely, you know, the internet had just really gotten uh, picking up speed. To where people, a lot of people had it, and this was really the first time I think Dylan had released new music that people had been able to say, "Whoa, wait a minute, what did he pull this from? What did you make of that? That he's borrowing so liberally from this person's book?" By the way, Mister Saga was said he was honored that Dylan would do this, but what do you think of that? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a that's always a tough one for an English professor, right? But I mean, yeah, literature is full of that, you know. And, and Bob Dylan has has developed a technique, um, particularly. Um, since uh, time out of mind of you might call it a pastiche where you're you're taking pieces from disparate sources and combining he's always done that you know but now he has the box which is you know some sort of maybe a physical object that he opens up and he pulls things out and he puts them together and he creates new works out I mean new art um, some of these lines are almost 
exactly the same as what Sagrite. So some are slightly different. Um, he lifted the tune. I'm more bothered by that than the, than what he did with hmm. the lyrics. When when I taught a, the, my Dylan course, this was always a major point of discussion because students have it pound in their heads; they're not allowed to plagiarize. And then here's this you know great artist they're studying who's <laughs> plagiarized in their minds. But he's created a whole new conceptual form of art. I mean, it's you know these are these are not you know this is not when you I I, I actually um, have read the the saga book. This is not the saga book. <laughs> this is not Confessions of a Yakuza. Right, right. Yeah, clearly. Yeah, like, that's why so it never he, bothered me, because it's like, well, it's clearly he's not, the song is, has no connection to whatever that book is about, and he's just yeah. borrowing some lines. So that's why I just sort of shrugged when I heard about it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad, I, yeah, I knew you were going to ask me about that, right? <laughs> because it comes up again and again and again, and it's an important question. But, you know, if, let's think about this as like visual art. You know, I'm, think of one of Bob Dylan's, remember when he was doing those paintings that were based on photographs that he lifted off of like Flickr or something like that? <laughs> right. Um, you know, people were upset about that, but these are paintings. Those are photographs. I'm sorry. This is done all the time. You know, so imagine he took one of those and then filled in the spaces and filled in the lines with images from other paintings that he painted in there. This would be an amazing work of art. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if you paint it a painting from Im- with images of other paintings. Right, that's what he does here. He's creating lyrics with pieces of other of other works of other mostly literature, but um, you know other works of various sorts, written works. It's try doing that. Try doing it. You know, good luck. (laughs) It's astonishing. Um, I I find it beautiful. I find it moving. Um, You know, it's incredible when you think about what he's done here because it's not just saga. There's tons of stuff in this song that's lifted. Um, you know, and that's what he, that's, that's his technique. And there's just something amazing that he can take all these things, things, you know, things you don't know, things you may never know. Well, Scott Wormuth will find them, but you know, so hmm. he, he seems to discover quite a bit, but you know, bizarre things that you would never even think of, um, are popping up in his music, popping up in Chronicles, popping up in Mass and Anonymous, popping up in his interviews. He gives interviews and he's quoting things to the interviewer you know, that he's lifted from other sources without any, you know, acknowledgement. That's astonishing. I find that incredible. I think it's brilliant. I love it. And then, you know, in terms of the lifting the, the tune, you know, that I, that I struggle with a little bit more, but it, you know, again, he's taken that tune, he's turned it into, turned it into something completely different. Um, and, and one of the things that always struck me about this song, I always loved about this song, right from the get-go, is how he phrases, um, you know, the, his, his singing. The way he, you know, he crams lines in there. He just sings these things incredibly fast in this short space because he's using somebody else's tune. Again, that's brilliant. <laughs> I do love the way he rushes through the, the Romeo and Juliet line because yeah. there's way too many words to get in there. You know, <laughs> it doesn't give your appearance a very youthful touch. You know, <laughs> there's yeah. way too many words for that for that line, but he, he fits it all in. Which I, I think is it's and the the, the vocal performance is very funny. To me, like it's a, it's a, it's a, the way he sings it is sort of comedic and it has a kind of, again, like a sort of a light touch to it. So, and then the, the song wraps up with, if you ever try to interfere with me or cross my path again, you do so at the peril of your own life. I'm not as quite as cool or forgiven as I sound. I've seen enough, enough heartache and strife. My grandfather was a duck trapper. He could do it with his dragnets and ropes. My grandmother could, could sew new dresses out of old cloth. I don't know if they had any dreams or hopes. I had them once, though, I suppose, to go along with all the ring dance and Christmas carols and all the Christmas eves. I left all my dreams and hopes buried under tobacco leaves. 
And then we've got the final four lines. It's not always easy kicking someone out. Got to wait a while. It can be an unpleasant task. Sometimes somebody wants to give something up and tears are not. It's too much to ask. Those lines have always bedeviled me uh, yeah. because I'm just like, what is he talking about? Like, what is he talking about? And as much as I can get satisfaction out of trying to figure it out, I mean, some songs I, I can't figure out and I'm okay with that. You know, I just say, all right, it's a bunch of nice sounding syllables with some, with a nice tune behind it. And that's enough. The way this song wraps up again, and maybe I'd love to know what you think of this, but like I've always figured is like, again, this is a guy who has been buffeted from thing to thing, doesn't seem fully in control of his own destiny. Uh, I think the opening lines about if you try to interfere with me or cross my path again, you'll do so at the peril of your own life. Feels like um, bravado. Like this is, you know, he's he's trying to make himself sound impressive, but he's not. But the idea is that he, this protagonist, is in a relationship of some sort that he knows needs to end, but he can't bring himself to do it because, again, he's weak. Uh, he's, you know, he's sort of timorous and he can't do it. And other people are sort of begging this guy, end this thing, right? You know, go like take, and he can't do it. And he's saying, even tears or not, it's too much. It's like these people are begging him to do this thing and he can't bring himself to do it. That is at least how I've always in- interpreted. Yeah, I, that that's great. I think you're, I think you're right. That's exactly what I think. Um, so good for you. I mean, you know, or, or maybe we're both wrong. I don't know, but it's, yeah, it, I think that's perfect. Um, that's exactly how I read it. You know, I, th- I see that that bravado. I don't know if he's he. You know, I, I see it as he, he's either remembering some incident and he's beefing himself up how he you know how he talked during an incident, or he's remembering. It, it almost sounds like dialogue from a bad movie, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, or he's remembering some some old movie or something, and then the. It turns out the Duck Trapper thing, um, Scott Warmoth again, he, he recently um, f- sourced that to, to another uh, saga work. Uh, it's not verbatim by any means. It's actually an image and, and Dylan's reworked it, but um, that's kind of interesting. Um, but then the, the, the last little bit from the, the last line of that, that um, third, to, third to the end verse, I don't know if they had any dreams or hopes. From then on, it's just devastating. Because then he says, I, I had him once, though, meaning dreams and hopes. Yeah. Right? He's, he's going back to the other verse. I had him once. And there's a, there's a gap there. This is actually a bridge in the song. And the way he sings this is incredible. He just rattles it off. I suppose to go along with all the ring dancing, Christmas cows, all the Christmas. You know, he says this real fast. Mm-hmm. And it, it's like he's, he's his, um, you know, he used to have dreams and hopes that went along with, you know, that Christmas stuff, right? That, that sort of fake holiday stuff. Woohoo. Everybody's having a good time. Then you go back to your miserable life. And then he says, I left all my dreams and hopes. There's that again, buried under tobacco. Leaves. I have no idea what that means. Buried under tobacco. Leaves. I can't find the symbolism of, of what tobacco leaves would be um, there. I don't, I don't know what that is. Um, I've tried to research it and you just find out stuff about cancer. So it's, it, and then, and then he says, it's not always easy kicking someone out. I think you're right. He's something, he's either being kicked out or he's got to break up with something. Something's happening in his life and he's resisting it. And then that final line, tears or not, it's too much to ask. That's directly out of Saga. That's, a, that's directly out of Confessions of a Yakuza, that line. Um, but I think you're right. It's, it's, it's really a guy who's very reluctant. That's what I'm saying. The whole song is him evading something. And it could be, you know, maybe it's somebody being kicked out. It's him being kicked out of life. I don't know. Hmm. Um, 
but there's there's something he doesn't want to have happen. He doesn't want to do. And I see him kind of off on the water, fishing, thinking aloud, getting a little concerned because the squall's coming in. He's gonna have to he's gonna have to go to shore at some point and face face the music one way or the other, whatever that is. The buried under tobacco leaves. I mean, you have the, specifically the line. I, I have no idea. Uh, but I, again, I always look at it as like the, he's remembering a time in his life when things were maybe seemingly idyllic and he was a better version of himself. And now he's very far away from that. And he's not the person that his fa- his father and mother and his grandfather and his grandmother would maybe respect. Like they raised him to be a different person. And now he's very far away from that. And he feels a little forlorn because it's like, oh, yeah, I was, you know. I left the best part of myself back when I was doing this other thing. And again, there's yet another Bob Dylan song where we are in a very indeterminate time period. Yeah. You know, you're like, these seem like old timey jobs, you know, <laughs> I mean, they, like it, you almost, this, this has like a uh, kind of old man in the sea or t- tortilla flat kind of feel to it. Um, you know, that you don't, is there cars in this world or is this kind of like, Early ninety, early twentieth century, you can never really know with with Bob when he's talking about. And you mentioned like the old timey language and stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, Christmas count, the Christmas Eves. I mean, all that kind of ring dancing. I mean, like you know, that's again, it's sort of an old timey <laughs> thing. Grandfather yeah. was a duck trapper. Who the he- what? Yeah, it's it's. I, I agree. I, and I, you know, when I dated to. 1932 when snuggled on your shoulder came out. <laughs> yeah, right. There you go. Right, it, right. Fits with it. Fits with that, right? Like if you lived in a rural area in 1932, this was this was life. You would and 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 you know he, he evokes the Rebel River, the, the the Civil War would still be something that came up. You know maybe not directly in memory. You know the the the, the people were in it, but it would still be something that was around. You would think about it. Um, yeah, I kind of I kind of think of it as a a 1920s 1930s setting. For whatever reason. Uh, and again, I don't know why your brain makes these connections and there's no real reason for it. Your brain just does it for some reason. Cause you mentioned the civil war. I think about in 97 when he got the, uh, the Lincoln center honor, the Kennedy center honor, excuse me. And he was, he was, uh, it was given to him or he was inducted by Gregory Peck. Of course, Bob knows. And we all know Bob loves Gregory Peck and Gregory Peck talks about growing up in a small town when he was a boy and he said he could distinctly remember the sight of Civil War veterans on a parade. And he, the phrase he used was marching down Main Street, kicking up the dust. And I, again, I cannot piece that imagery with what's going on in this song. But I, somehow I just, I just do. Uh, because it's, I think about the connection, like, that Bob Dylan, through his love of Gregory Peck, again, we know that he you know, wrote Bronzeville Girl, that Gregory Peck, who was a, you know, a standing, alive person in 1997, inducting Bob Dylan into, the, into this, giving this great honor to Bob Dylan, was old enough to remember Civil War veterans, which just seems now, you know, to our eyes, that seems like a, a millennia, more than a millennia ago. Uh, and yet, to me, that's, it has that, feeling to it that this guy this this floater guy is remembering a time that has long since passed and he's again mainly dealing with sort of like more modern problems the modern relationships the way because he's i mean he he had when he talks about the the father and the mother uh he speaks by the way his he mentions his mother a lot on this particular record i wanted to ask you about that because you talk about that you think this is a very 
one of the more coherent thematically albums, but he, but I love that the sort of, uh, you know, he talks about his mother and his father. I never seen them quarrel either my mother, even once things come alive or they fall flat. And I love the sort of simplicity, the way he puts that of like, he could sum up an entire relationship of things come alive or they fall flat. It either works or it doesn't. And I just yeah. love the kind of shruggy delivery of that. Um, yeah, I, you know, it, it, <laughs> I, it is, but that's, but that's a guy who, li- who has no control over his life. Right. Like you said before, this is a guy who he's, he's heading towards something. He has no control. Things come along. They, 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 they come alive, they fall flat, whatever. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you can do about it. what can you do? Right. Um, that's just someone who's just accepting the fact that he has no agency in his life. Yeah. It's a real um, case or Sera kind of attitude. Yeah. And, and the, the, um, the, the, you mentioned of, the, of his mother. Yeah. That, um, Dylan's mother had just died, you know, when he was writing songs, he even, uh, what's, uh, what song is these things? He actually Lonesome sings day a- blues. Yeah. I wish my mother yeah, was still alive. Yeah. 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 Which by the way, when I was looking at this whole album for that paper, which I never got to deliver because of COVID, um, the, uh, that was the one song I identified where that he seemed to be talking about himself a little bit when he said, I, Everywhere else in the album, when he says, I, he doesn't seem to be talking about himself. It's a character. It's somebody else. And usually that's the case with Dylan. But in this, in that one, there were some things that it just seemed really, really personal to him in that song. Um, so I think, yeah, I think his mother was on his mind a lot. You mentioned earlier that you thought this was one of, Love and Theft was one of his most sort of thematically coherent records. Yeah. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? How do you, I mean, sort of, what do you, what do you mean by that? Um, well, that, 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 that idea of it, um, being it, you know, sort of deterministic, right? It's a bunch, it, there's a lot of characters in this album, like I said before, um, you know, Po' Boy, Sugar Baby, all these, all these people pop up throughout this, um, Tully Dumb, Tully D, pop up throughout this album. And um, they all have to deal with the, the fact, just like Floater, that they don't have control. They don't have agency. They can't really shape their lives a whole lot. They're going to end up where they're, de- where they're destined to end up. The whole universe is just ending up where you end up, um, and you and you don't really get to to change that at all. And I think that he's, that's what he's saying in this album. And, and again, I think he he's saying that to some extent in Chronicles and definitely in Mass and Anonymous. So uh, this, in terms of its placement in the record, uh, do you feel that it has some sort of thematic resonance there, or is it more a sonic thing where it's just kind of a nice? It's like a, it's almost like a little cool drink of water in the middle. Cause the, the rest of the album is kind of hard driving, especially you said Lonesome Day Blues. And then you have this sort of sweet kind of thing. It's funny again, talk about images that this conjures up. I picture Bob with the band playing some sort of like outside cafe in Paris somewhere as people are just sipping their, you know, si- sipping their, their, their coffee. And there's, you know, the, this kind of place, you know, the place that they're, uh, they're, 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 uh, playing at is some sort of like it's right on like the banks of the you know the banks of a river or something and they're just they're this kind of these buskers just so they're playing i can sort of imagine bob and the band in another life kind of being that kind of band that's that's again that's the image of sort of conjured the sort of unassuming slightly motley looking crew making these kind of making this sort of sweet tune as people just sort of you know enjoy the outside uh it's during their outside coffees i love that <laughs> that's beautiful i think you're right that's great yeah, I, the, the placement of the song. I mean, you know, I'm just looking at this, the, uh, the the song list now. I mean, it is dead in the middle. It's the sixth of twelve songs, right? Mm-hmm. 
So if this were vinyl, this were on a vinyl album, this would either be the last song of side one or the first song of side two. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting placement, you know, between Lonesome Day Blues and High Water. I don't know. I haven't really thought much about it. I, I kind of considered it more more sonic, like you said. The um, you know, these get these two hard driving songs, Lonesome Day Blues, High Water, um, with this sweet, almost sickly tune in between that, that kind of makes a nice bridge there. Thematically, I have to think about that. And of course, you know, if if he is referring to floaters as someone who floats uh, a dead body floating in water, well, you often get dead bodies floating in water when you have high water, True. which is, of course, the very next song. It's so, uh, you know, maybe he's, th- he's throwing that in there, too. Now, live-wise, we talked about it early on, and you said it played 87 times. Um, he mostly played this during the brief period when he had uh, a woman in his band. He had the uh, the, the Cowtown uh, uh la violinist elena fremerman i know she has another name uh, but i know her as elena fremerman fremerman excuse me she played the fiddle uh yeah. on this song and again if you go on youtube and you watch some of the performances she's out there she's playing the the fiddle part um and he played it before she joined the band and then he as you mentioned he played it like kind of once in 2007 but the bulk of the performances are really when she was with the band Uh, which again is she was the first woman member of Bob Dylan's band stating all the way back to Scarlett Rivera again, Uh, big with the, the female uh, violinist. So it seems to have been retired for a while. Again, you never know with uh, Bob Dylan songs, but it's past 2007 and has not been performed uh, since, but again, you know, you never know with Bob, he could always dig it out. And, you know, the violin part is so, excuse me, the fiddle part is so, pronounced i can't imagine doing it a different way of course that doesn't that will mean bob will find a way to do it differently uh but you know what i mean it's like i i can't yeah. imagine what the song would sound like without that fiddle part yeah he, he might bring it back as a hard rocker you never know yeah exactly um yeah <laughs> um, yeah, I, yeah i think you're right um yeah and he he doesn't and i've noted that for a long time with a little consternation he doesn't play with a lot of women you know he had his his, his singers for a while yeah. um you know and a few few women here and there mostly on things like fiddle. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that. I know I've, I've seen, I don't remember where exactly or when, but I, I definitely have heard him perform this song. And um, I can't remember who was playing fiddle. On the original, it was Larry Campbell. Oh, by the way, um, on High Water, just one little note. Nobody drowns in that song. That's... <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah, there is, there is nobody, nobody... Just people wanted dead or alive, and nobody actually yeah, dies, nobody in, in, dies in that song. <laughs> so yeah, he like said it's it's an interesting tune. Uh, again, it really made one of it's one of the I'd say one of the more exceptional songs in Love and Theft. Although I think that whole record is pretty exceptional uh, as yeah. it goes. Um, so yeah, he like said it's it's a really great tune. So uh, thank you for coming on to talk about it. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. I thought it was great. Um, so okay, Jim, you kind of know what's coming. Uh, yeah. I've been asking everybody, uh, what song do you want to hear Bob open his first concert with? He comes to you, Jim. Now, of course, at the time we we're recording this, Bob has since performed his first concert and, mm-hmm. uh, no one, uh, guessed what song. again, people weren't trying to guess what song he was going to do. They were suggesting what song they wanted to hear him do. And, but right. we now know that he is op- He opened his first show in Milwaukee with watching the river flow, a yeah. very curious choice. Yeah. Um, to open with a song about a guy who, as he says, what's the matter with me? I don't have much to say. Coming <laughs> off of one of the strongest records he's ever put out. Typical Dylan sort of understatement. 
But let me ask you, I probably am going to have to phase this question out because it's just not going to be relevant anymore. But I did want to ask you, let, let's say, you know, Bob has decided, well, in the, in the next bunch of dates, I'm going to change up the first song anyway. So, Jim, what do you want to hear me play? <laughs> By the way, I knew you were going to ask me this question. So I was going to say watching the river flow originally, and then he did it. So you know, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a joking. genius. I'm yeah, a genius. I believe it. It's amazing. Now, um, it's funny. I, I, I actually don't like this question because I, I have, I, it's something about me. When I go to concerts, I always, it takes me a little while to get into the concert. I'm like that with music. Um, when I hear a new album, it usually takes me a little while to get into it. So the first couple of songs are kind of lost on me. And sometimes, let's face it, you know, I've listened to a lot of, lot of uh, concert bootlegs from Dylan. He's not always on his, you know, on his best game in his first couple of songs. You know, I was like, mm. kind of phoning it in sometimes, you know, rushing through, things have changed, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I don't really care what his first song is usually, but I was thinking a lot, like what would, what would I want to hear that would just, if there's one Dylan song that would get me on my feet, if he just started a concert with it, what would it be? And I thought about it and thought about it and I realized it's, it's what, um, changing of the guards. That would blow me away. That would be amazing to hear. That would, that would blow me away. I would be so excited. I, I probably wouldn't be able to sleep for three days. That would, that would really be amazing. So, Okay. Second question, though, because up on Twitter, someone oh. commented. Uh, I get to give them the credit. This was the a, the Twitter handle known as the Pomegranate County Irregulars. Great name, <laughs> fellas. They offered an alternate question, so you're going to get both. I think I'm going to do this one going forward. But you're going to get both, Jim. All right. They asked if you got invited to a Bob tribute concert and you're on first. What song do you perform? Now, obviously, most people I'm going to ask this are not musicians, but it doesn't matter. This is a fantasy world. What would, what would you want to – well, I love that question so much. Thank you, uh, PCI. Uh, that I'm going, to, I'm going to throw it to you, Jim. What, what song would you want to perform if you had musical talent and you were able to go to a Bob's own – you know, all of these, all these conditions are met. What song would you want to perform? Well, let's see. I've been, I've been playing ukulele for a few months. Um, <laughs> okay. I play a lot of Bob Dylan, my ukulele. So Bob Dylan karaoke. Um, what would I want to do in Bob Dylan karaoke? That's a that's a that's a good question. Um, I hate this question. Why am I the first <laughs> one to get it? <laughs> um, it, it, wow! Now I've got all of D- Dylan's catalog running through my head. What would be something I'd want to really perform? What you know? What no? It would be a lot of fun to do a song that's incredibly difficult to sing kind of like floater right the way he yes. sings it um you know like brownsville girl something like that <laughs> where he just you know he just the way he <laughs> sings those lines you're like how did he do that <laughs> you know? he took a, a three syllable line and turned it into 10 syllables and this one he, he crammed in there somehow how does he do that i would love to to try to figure out dylan's phrasing i would love to do a tribute to dylan in mimicking his phrasing so something complex like that i can't you know, maybe not Brent. Well, Browns will be fun to say. Browns will go. That's my choice. All right. Hey, bringing it back to uh, Gregory Peck. So there yeah, you go. Yeah, that's a good, it's a good answer. In my mind. Yeah, there you go. That, that's, a, that's a bold move, though, to be the first guy up there. And you're, I'm going to sing for now 11 minutes or whatever that song is. So it's going to keep going. So it'd be pretty amazing. So again, that's it. That, that, again, that's a great answer. I like that a lot. So again, I, I think we're going to move that question in. Uh, in came in place of the concert one because I really I like that idea. So, well, Jim, thank you so much for for coming by and talking floater with me. This was terrific. Yeah, thank you. This was great. I really had a good time. Great. So, why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet? Um, actually, do you mind if I put a plug in for something I wrote? Oh, go right ahead. Yeah. So, um, I, I published a piece with um 
the Dillon Review, which is an online journal, um, back over the summer on uh, on it's called a, it's called uh, Bob Dylan and Wallace Stevens in Conversation, but it's really about uh, the the song uh, Key West Philosopher Pirate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was pretty happy with the way it came out. And I just want to, I'm hoping people get to read that. It's a really good journal. So it's a good thing to check out if you haven't. But on the internet, you can find me, you can find me there. And you can also find me, I have a, a, a website, um, jimsalvici.com, S-A-L-V-C-C-I.com, which is my, uh, my business website. And I am also, I blog and I podcast on, on a Substack um, every week. And I do a uh, and that's uh, jimsalvucci.substack.com. And uh, sometimes I, I, I use, I, I'm mostly writing about uh, management, leadership, um, things like that. But I often use Dylan as a, a jumping off point and, and sometimes, you know, derive leadership le- lessons from Bob Dylan. Um, and also I'm on Twitter, uh, Jim Salve, I think it is, J-I-M-S-A-L-V. And, you know, various other places as well. But those are the three main things I do. All right. Busy man. So uh, again, again, thanks so much, Jim, for coming by. I appreciate it. Uh, of course, you. everybody, uh, you can find back episodes of the show on our website, finewaterpodcast.com. You can subscribe to Pod Dylan on any podcatcher of your choice. And then if you want to support the Fine Water Podcast Network, just go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can unlock various rewards, one of which is to be name checked on a show of your choice. So big thanks to Robert Ward, Steve Cronin, Max Hutzel, Sebastian Krogh, George Doherty, and Joaquin Meckel for their support of Pod Dylan. I very much appreciate it. That is going to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we will see you later. Bye. Snuggled on your shoulder, cuddled in your arms, dreaming while we're flying. Say, I'm thrilled. By all your charms